Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, most parents and educators who are listening to this podcast want to develop a culture in their homes, in their schools, in their businesses, in their communities, where kids are kind, accepted, allowed to ask questions and support one another so that everyone gets what they need to thrive. This necessitates some pretty uncomfortable conversations, as we know, and especially about bias, stereotypes, racism, ableism, gender, and more. How can we help our children embrace anti-bias and anti-racist practices that move beyond the antiquated views such as I don't see color or gender doesn't matter to a more advanced understanding of how these social constructs impact and define our peers and those people we don't even know? How can we help our children realize what is equal and what is fair and how the difference affects ourselves and others. For all of this and more, we go to the amazing Liz Kleinrock. Liz Kleinrock is a Korean-American, queer, Jewish, anti-bias, and anti-racist educator of both children and adults, and creates curriculum for K-12 students, specializing in designing inquiry-based units of study. In addition to her work as a classroom teacher, Liz also works with schools and companies to facilitate learning for adults that supports anti-bias and anti-racist practices. In 2018, Liz received the Teaching Tolerance Award of Excellence in Teaching and in 2019 delivered her TED Talk, How to Teach Kids to Talk About Taboo Topics, a really good one. In the spring of 2021, Liz released her first book, Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in your school and community. This is a great book. If you really want to do the work, she lays it out really, really well. And so I highly recommend that. She is also excited to announce the publication of four upcoming children's books with Harper Collins. She currently teaches and resides in Washington, D.C. with her partner and two bunnies. So welcome Liz Kleinrock to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you so much, Dr. Robin. It's great to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I absolutely loved your book. I've been following you for a long time. Before we jump into the full discussion about talking to kids about anti-bias and anti-racist actions, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what got you so interested on this path of teaching kids about bias, racism, and how to combat those things? That's a great question. I think if we were going like all the way back, we would go back to when I was a student in school. Um, There are a lot of different intersections of my own identity. I identify as Korean, Korean American, Asian American, Jewish, bisexual. Um, And throughout my K-12 schooling experience, I don't really recall ever learning about anyone who looked like me. I don't recall learning a lot about my history, really, aside from like the Holocaust. Um, And a lot of that education I had to do on my own 
And at the same time, I do recall a lot of very uh, ignorant, very biased comments and questions from my peers, also from teachers. Um, my mother reminded me recently that um, one time in high school and I was uh, on the volleyball team, the coach asked uh, who was gonna be out for High Holy Days. Um, Jewish students on the team responded. And when it got to me and I said I was going to be out, she didn't believe me. She was going to let make me get a note from my parents mm. excusing me from practice, but nobody else did just because I didn't appear to look like what she thought a Jewish student looked like. Um, so a lot of things like that. And many starting at a younger age. Um, as for what gets me up in the morning, I mean, I love working with youth. I love education. I love teaching. I love learning. Um, I think schools can be really challenging and it's often really important to differentiate between all of those. Um, but I think a lot about the state of, you know, the U.S. and all the things that are happening in our worlds and in our communities. And I've always been very grateful to work in schools because every day I get up and I feel like I'm trying to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And I remember after like the 2016 election, talking to a lot of friends who work in different fields um, and how frustrated they felt like they didn't know where to direct their energy more on a day-to-day -day basis. And I've always been grateful and feeling that every time I'm working with young people or in a school, I'm, I'm trying to do something about the problems that we're facing. I think your work is, is so on point. I'd like to address the elephant in the room because you opened up and talked about the different ways that you identify. And we have all kinds of listeners, obviously, parents, educators, coaches. But for the listener who's like coming to this and saying, well, wait a second, I'm white, I'm I'm cisgender. Um, that's how they identify as congruent with their biological sex named at birth for those who are listening, who are able-bodied, who are neurotypical, um, who weren't adopted like you were and my kids were. And so they're listening to this and they're going, maybe my parents never talked to me about this. Racism hasn't been an issue for me. Discrimination hasn't been an issue for me. Who am I as a white, straight, able-bodied, neurotypical person to be talking about any of this when I've never experienced discrimination like this. So what do you say to somebody who's coming to that and, and, and kind of has gotten the either let's not talk about it or let's treat everybody the same or let's just move on and who am I to say anything about it anyway? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because I think it's a really common mentality and to be honest, like no disrespect to my parents, I love them very much, um, but they were both very much raised in that sort of mindset. Um, they grew up in a time when they were taught, you know, don't point out differences, right. treat everyone equally. We, you know, we respect everyone no matter what. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good start. I think the intentions there are really positive. And I also think that we have to push things forward a bit more too because if we don't name the elephant in the room, it doesn't make the elephant go away. It doesn't mean that the elephant isn't there. Um, and I think when it comes to you know, those awareness gaps, there are plenty of issues out in the world that might not seem to directly impact us, but 
you know, we're living in diverse communities. The demographics of our communities are changing constantly. And ultimately, we really want to be thinking about how can we set our, our children up for success, regardless of their identity? How can we make sure that everyone feels respected, feels included, that we are building future spaces where people with identities that have been marginalized are not treated as an afterthought? How can we create environments where everyone knows they've been thought of ahead of time? Um, and so even if you feel like this work doesn't apply to you, we know that allyship, we know that solidarity across identities is such a crucial part of this work. And if you feel like you hold you know, certain aspects of your identity where you have a lot of privilege, then I ask you to spend that privilege. Like, well, it's kind of like a, a waste of time and energy to just sit around feeling you know, guilty or ashamed because I don't think a lot of folks are really asking you to feel that way. But once you acknowledge this part about yourself, what can you then do with it? What can you do within your own community to educate people about issues that others are facing? What does it mean to elevate and amplify the voices and actions of people who have been trying to create more equitable and inclusive communities for all of us? Um, there are so many different ways to be involved. Yes, and I, I agree with you. And I would add also, I had interviewed Abby Goldberg, who's a professor at Clark University and does incredible work on gender and uh, adoption and, and longitudinal studies that are just actually really amazing. And she also said that we don't know how our kids are going to grow up. And so, yes, we're, we're trying to help the world and help others, but also know that your child may grow up and say, I'm gay, or your child may grow up and uh, have a partner who is of a different race. Like th there could be, they could adopt like I did. Like you don't know what's going to happen later on in life with your own child. So it may become personal, isn't that correct? Yeah, absolutely. There's no way to predict because, you know, there are parts of our identities that might be more fixed than others, but we are in a constant state of evolution. Mm -hmm. And I think the really amazing thing about this, this work, about the way that language is evolving, is that children now have so many more options when they think mm -hmm. about how they identify. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot about my trans and non-binary friends and colleagues that they knew something was different about them for such a long time, but just didn't have the language to really put their finger on it. And it can be so incredibly empowering when you teach your children language around lots of different identities. So they actually feel more included. They know that there's a community out there. So let's get a baseline here, just so that we're all on the same page of how you are defining bias and racism and anti-bias and anti-racism for those who are listening. Yeah, I think when it comes to bias, I like to start by talking about hierarchies um, and lots of different hierarchies that we create in our minds that we might put certain weight on certain people or communities or groups or even ideas that some are you know, somehow like better or worse than others. And what happens then once we have these biases, whether or not we are aware of them, is that what happens is most often we act on them. And so with an anti-bias work, some of the most challenging parts are the very beginning where you actually have to sit or reflect, or maybe you're in a situation where you realize that you have been harboring a certain kind of bias. And very naturally, they're going to be, you know, some shameful or defensive feelings that come up in you because I think we all want to assume we're good people. Nobody ever wants to think that they're a problematic human. Um, but I also believe that 
we have to understand what the problem is before we can try to repair it. And that's when the work really begins of trying to identify and push back against our biases. Um, like even the other day, I caught myself when I was driving to work, I was waiting at a red light um, and there was a guy on the corner, um, or rather, there was a person on the corner um, who was out for an early morning run who had this enormous hat on, like almost comically large hat. And in my head, I was like, this hat is, is so large. I almost like want to take a picture of it and like send it to my partner to be like, can you see what this person is wearing? And then I stopped myself and thought maybe this person has some sort of processing disorder. Maybe they get really overstimulated by the things happening in our city. Maybe it's an accommodation for themselves. Mm. And that really made me kind of stop and think, Oh, like, wow, I caught myself there. Like that was an assumption that I was making. And once I can actually sit with it, then I can teach myself to do better next time. Mm -hmm. And that whole thought process took like 10 seconds in my head. Um, but these are the types of things I also like to model with my students to know that bias is oddly like one of our common denominators as humans. Like it doesn't matter what your identity is. We all have different biases about different people and groups and ideas. Um, and what matters is when you recognize that you have these biases, what do you do with them? Um, and most importantly, with anti-bias and anti-racist act, um, activism, with education, it really has to be rooted in action. So what are you doing with this knowledge? Like, are you just holding it for yourself? Like, what does that next step look like for you? So for those people who want to start, you say in your book, at the end of the day, we cannot fix problems we don't talk about or that we cannot name. So, so for the parent or educator or coach that's listening in who wants to get started talking to kids about bias and racism, anti-bias and anti-racism, where do they start? What would be the first conversations that they should be having after this podcast and after they reflect on the things you just mentioned? Yeah, I think that starting with the self is always a really great place, especially when you are newer to some of the language or some of these ideas to think about, you know, what are the intersections of my identity? Did I feel seen, valued, loved, and affirmed for who I was growing up? Do I feel that way now? Um, if I'm raising a family with young people in it, thinking about representation, am I having certain conversations with young people in my life? And if I'm not, what might be holding me up? Um, I think very naturally folks who are newer to this type of work um, tend to gravitate more towards like the intellectual. Um, so, you know, reading books about different issues, listening to podcasts like this, really trying to build their knowledge base first before jumping in. Um, and I really do think being able to listen to those who have historically been marginalized is going to be one of the greatest gifts and teaching tools that you can receive. Um, the, one of the common trainings that I do for a lot of schools is also um, pushing educators to think about how they react in certain situations. Like if somebody says or does something that is harmful or problematic or biased in front of me, how do I respond? How do I react? Because um, I do think that, you know, when things arise and we, we engage in those like fight or flight responses, we usually end up spending, you know, the next night or two, like in bed, like mulling over, you know, what did I say? What did I not say? What do I wish I had done differently? Um, and to think about how you can actually show up for people in the moment. 
um, and as silly as it sounds, sometimes like role-playing, looking at different scenarios, like practicing what you might say in your head can be really, really helpful. I'd love to explore that further because in your book, you talk about a girl named Abby who responded to another child in your class who had asked, why are people racist? And then she made a derogatory statement. Maybe white people don't like black people because they think their skin is the color of poop. And you responded to that. Actually, I thought in a a beautiful way, but you talk about how, first of all, you wanted to make sure you didn't have a knee-jerk reaction, which we often would do. I mean, I thought of myself in that situation where if I had heard something, I would want to be like, exactly what you said not to do. Like, don't just go, that's really rude. You you don't say those things that hurt somebody's feelings because I mean, that is the knee-jerk reaction. But you also said after you talked about it, that racial discrimination exists because people feel that black skin isn't as attractive as, as white skin in, in historically. And then you said, wait, after you were thinking about it and mulling it over in bed and kind of were like, wait a second, I, I, would, I would respond differently now. And, and I was wondering, how would you respond to that? How would you counsel somebody to respond to a situation where they make a derogatory statement, which you are really upset about it. You know, you want to make sure everybody else who's listening in knows that this is the wrong thing to do. And here's why. So how would you respond? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Like the knee jerk reaction that I lay out in the book, um, you know, I think a lot of what people might say as knee jerk reactions are still crucial parts of the conversation because students and young children do need to know when a line is crossed. They need to understand boundaries. They need to understand dehumanizing language. Um, But with just a knee-jerk reaction, it means that there is no room for dialogue. There's no room for questioning. There's no room for reflecting or learning or unlearning. Shaming somebody is not going to make them learn. Exactly. And so like in that situation, I remember thinking like, oof, wow. Um, if I just yell at this kid, because all these other students are already either laughing at her or they're yelling at her. Um, And if this is really like one of the first memories she's going to have about talking about race or racism, then she's probably going to revert back to this emotional state and think, well, the last time I said something or asked a question, this is what happened. So I'm out. I'm not going to do this anymore. And we really don't want that to happen. And there is also modeling that needs to happen for everyone else who's witnessing it. They need to understand what it looks like to have a conversation where you can correct and call somebody in, where you can ask questions um, in a way that is authentic. Um, No one's gonna get in trouble for asking questions. And I think what I had missed out on more and what I've been more intentional about moving forward is thinking about who's being centered in this conversation too. Um, Abby was also a student of color who was not black. Um, And so thinking about how other kids of color, especially those with darker skin in my class might have felt. And so there was, um, of course, you know, check-in conversations with other students after, you know, this incident, there were follow-up conversations with parents and caregivers. There was a lot of moving parts. Um, And I think for at least educators knowing that it's not just a one and done conversation, that there are a lot of different parties that you do need to check in with and make sure that they are cared for. So if you want to make sure that the correct people are centered in that conversation, but at the same time, according to your book, you don't want to be tokenizing a particular person or making an example of somebody like choosing somebody from your classroom. Like, how do you think this person feels about what you just said? 
yeah. Don't how, do that. <laughs> how do you do that in a way that's not that? I think having one-on-one conversations, asking kids like, Hey, would you like to check in sometimes, you know, grabbing them for a minute before they head out to like recess or lunch. Um, if they seem to be okay, you know, just keep an eye on things. Um, like I said, I followed up with a number of parents and just said, Hey, like, this is something that came up in class today. Feel free to ask your child about it. Please let me know if they share anything at home that you think I need to address with them individually or as a whole group. And all the parents were really appreciative of just having that check-in too. Mm -hmm. Because I think for a lot of teachers, it's a, let's just sweep this under the rug and like, let's pretend that nothing happened. Like no one mentioned this. Right, right, exactly. And I mean, you did in the initially talk about how harmful it was. It, it's hurts and it's harmful and it's a, the kind of language that we're trying to get away from. But it's important to also not just refer to this one person, as you're saying, you really need to make sure that how that comment landed on somebody who would be affected by it is just as important or more so. Uh, because it's who was harmed by it. Is that correct? Absolutely. And say that it becomes like a a wonderful teachable moment for 95% of the class and it becomes a a moment of trauma for the other 5%. Mm. Like that's not a win. Right, right. Now, I know that you do a lot of work helping teachers integrate these these, uh, concepts into the classroom. So how can parents then integrate conversations of anti-bias and anti-racist work into their everyday at home. Like I'm thinking what they're reading, what, you know, what, during bath time, cooking, what, what would you say would help with that? Because we don't want to be like, and now we're going to talk about stereotyping and unfair treatment of LGBTQ <laughs> community, or we're going to talk about racism. I, I, I did love what you did with the, like the Halloween costumes, for example, but I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about like, what would you say to parents to, like to do and be aware of that th- that could bring up the concept in a in a way that doesn't feel so pushed? Yeah, I think depending on what your child's interests are, I know there is a there's a lot of different media out there today. If your child is into reading, if they really like movies, you can be really intentional and selective about what types of content and like how who is being portrayed. How are be- people being portrayed? Also, you know there are some you know, resources that I really like to use with students where we point out, you know, both the positives and the negatives of, you know, certain types of representation. Um, I think media, especially books, is some of the easiest ways to start those conversations with kids because even if, you know, the characters in the story do not match the identities of anyone in your family, there are often underlying themes that connect to, to everybody. Um, you can think about, you know, if your child plays sports, you know, what kinds of sports teams, like where in your community, are you signing kids up? Are you taking them out to explore different parts of your community, especially if you live in a more homogenous neighborhood? Are you going to museums? Are you talking about history? You know, there are lots of different ways to integrate those types of family experiences, not just things that you're hoping you're, you're not just signing your kids up to go out and do these things on your own, but how you can create these, you know, communal learning moments for everybody in your family together. I love that. And I, I really have felt that push for myself. I was, I've been researching for so long and, and writing my book and, and, and talking to amazing experts like you, but I, I just joined free mom hugs, which is a, an organization that goes to different pride events and 
offer support and hugs to people in the LGBTQ community who may have been cast out by their families or just need an extra adult to kind of be there and listen. And I know that it was Brian Stevenson who said, you have to get proximate, like that whole idea of of making sure that you're you're getting in with the different communities, you're exposing your children to different types of people and moving, you know, around your neighborhoods and around the communities. So what if we want to then not just expose, but we actually want to start some activism, that we want to actually do something that would help some of these different marginalized communities and, and make it part of who we are as a person, what would you say we could do? I would say to look first at organizations in your community that have already been doing this work, especially if you're talking to, you know, your child or folks in your family about, you know, what are, what are things that we could do together? If it's food scarcity, you know, if Mm -hmm. it's climate change, um, looking at organizations that have already been on the ground because chances are there's probably a lot of people, especially folks of color who have already been engaged in this type of activism. Um, But for, I think, honestly, a lot of white folks, you might live in more like financially affluent areas. When a lot of white people learn about certain issues for the first time, they jump into like white savior mode. Yes, Like, oh, I need to help. I need to save. Um, I have all the solutions, but like, oh, like you're not even living in the community that is hurting. So you don't know what people have been up to. Um, So step one, decentering yourself there. You're not here to save anybody. Um, Going back to the language around like amplification um, and elevating, asking people how you can help rather than making the assumption of how people want to be helped. and a lot of the service work that I've done and like assisting different organizations, especially with like volunteering. Um, the first thing that I like to write about in volunteer handbooks is, would you still be doing this if you couldn't tell anyone about it? Mm-hmm. If you could not post pictures of yourself or tell everyone what you're doing on, on Facebook or on Instagram, would you still do it? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a really beautiful quote um, from Jose Andres when he's being interviewed about World Central Kitchen. And he says that too many people believe that charity should be about the redemption of the giver when charity should really be about the liberation of the receiver. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a beautiful way to think about philanthropy around humanitarian work. And I really tried to keep that centered in what Mm -hmm. I do. Thank you for saying that. That is incredibly important. And I think that people have all different kinds of reasons why they choose some of the things that they they do. But I, I think that's an important thing to bring up of what why are we doing the work that we're doing and, and is it about posting on Facebook or whatever? That's really, really illuminating. Would you say that the same lens of of anti anti-racism that you you've brought up so much and talked about? like when we were talking about the the comment that Abby made in your classroom, would you use the same structure if somebody said something in your family, let's say, who said, like, that's so gay, or they say, uh, girls can't throw a ball like boys, you know, because you shouldn't try or use the R word when pointing out somebody's disabilities, because somebody has dyslexia or, or other learning disabilities. Like, is there some commonality and how we respond to those types of statements or how we educate our children about those statements? 
That's a great question because I think it's something a lot of people struggle with, including yeah. myself, just because the nature of our relationships is different. And a hundred percent, I will respond differently to students than to someone at my family, you know, at a at a holiday. Mm. Um, I think often with our family members, we tend to be less patient. We tend to be quicker to snap back. Mm -hmm. um, I will say myself included too. Um, and also because many of us do have like these very, you know, deep rooted emotional relationships with people in our family, our reactions might come out far more, you know, emotionally charged than others. Mm -hmm. I think like the best advice is to take a breath. I know that sounds super basic, but it's also a really great thing to model for our children mm -hmm. um, to take a breath. You can say, you know, if it's at like a family event, like, ouch, like I really didn't like that. Mm -hmm. um, and you could say, you know, it's it's disrespectful. You know, it's, it's not kind. Um, I would still suggest like having the one-on-one -on -one because even if it's somebody in your family, no one likes being put on the spot. No one likes being called out and feeling shamed and, you know, because it's your family, you're probably going to see them at the next holiday and the one after that. Um, and if you are able to find a common ground, that's amazing. Perhaps they've just never thought or asked like how using certain language might make you feel. And if they are, you know, entirely not interested in hearing you out, there's really, unfortunately, like so much you can control. Like you mm -hmm. have to focus on the things that you can control versus the things you can't. You might be able to like lean on another family member to help support you in that conversation or have another family member talk to the original family member um, or to let others in your family know, hey, like this actually hurt when, you know, this person said, you know, X, Y, Z in the future, I would appreciate being supported by, you know, and letting them know what they can actually do. Mm -hmm. And you had highlighted in your book, that kind of idea of you could, I don't remember who said it, but being able to say, you know, I, I used to feel that way, but then I got this information and now I, and now I know, or now I feel. Yeah. Um, this, I used like, to think, but then I right. learned and uh, now I know. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a really beautiful um, thinking stem, just in, in, like humbling yourself to yeah. show like, Hey, I am not, I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to like virtue signal here. Right. I'm not saying I know everything, but you know, I used to learn that I used to think a certain way, just like this. And mm -hmm. then, you know, someone taught me or, you know, I read or I learned, and now this is what I do instead. Cause you know, I don't want to hurt anybody. I want to, you know, make people, you know, feel loved, feel affirmed. Do you feel the same way when you were saying, you know, you can't really change somebody's mind, but what about for, I mean, we, we've all come across people and, and I, and I hope that people are more open these days, but I hear about it a lot as we move to North Carolina and I love it here, but we do find that some people will say um, to my, my own daughter will come home from middle school and say, somebody said, they said LGBTQ, it's a sin and we certainly shouldn't be talking about it. And so how do we, how do we address that if we're trying to move forward with some of this new language or talking to like even suggesting talking to kids about it. One of my friends just wrote a book and, and that, and it's in there how kids can be talking about it. And she's getting like one star reviews for her book on from some people or like, we shouldn't be talking about it at all. How, how do you respond to that? 
well, kids are going to be talking about it regardless because mm. kids talk about all the exact same things that adults talk about. I think the ignorance um, <laughs> of adults is assuming that, you know, kids are only interested in talking about video games and like TikTok. And, you know, that's really not the case because kids are exposed to all of the things that adults are exposed to, especially with social media and the way technology has advanced. Um, I think that when kids say, certain things to me like if a child came up to me and said like you know being gay is a sin the first thing I would ask them is like where'd you hear that who said that right oh that's a good one yeah and if you know they say you know like oh like my mom or dad said that I would say okay so that's something that your mom or dad said do you think that too because like what Mm -hmm. you think isn't always necessarily what your parents think and if they say I don't know I would say you should probably think about what you actually think because if people ask you questions like this, you gotta be able to back it up. It's actually, can we see like why it might be harmful if you just go around repeating what other people say? What if it's like entirely not true? And then if it's in a classroom setting, I would say, no, there are actually a lot of people in our school and our classroom community who identify as gay, as queer. And so we know that our classroom environment needs to be a place where people feel safe and secure and welcomed. And, you know, your parents might say that at home, but we don't use language like that here. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to just take that in and highlight that we could use that same type of language in our family and how we're creating the culture of our family. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. You can use it anywhere. Okay. So I know we're coming up to the the end of our podcast. Can you give us your top tip, what do you want people to come away with after reading your book or listening to this podcast about anti-bias work and anti-racist work um, that we can bring into our own homes? I would say first and foremost, there's no one size fits all. Every family is different. So the needs of your family members are gonna be different. Even if you have you know, best friends in this, if you live next door to people, it's going to look different. The same thing, because I'm trying to be responsive to my students in front of me. I might have a partner teacher who shares a wall with me and our work is going to look different because the people in front of us are different. Mm. Um, That it's really important to know that we are on this lifelong journey of learning and unlearning. Um, We don't get to a point where we say, cool, I'm done. I checked all the boxes, like give me my certificate of being anti-racist. It it doesn't work (laughs) like that. Um, And that, you know, I have often, you know, gone back and forth about how I feel about the term expert and the way people use it. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes it can be fairly dehumanizing because it implies like what, you know, everything there is to know about a topic. I don't know a lot, (laughs) like an enormous amount out there. And the last thing I would say is like, this is a very like particular tip, but it's something I've noticed in all of the books that I've been reading to my students, especially about like segregation and, and, you know, racism and discrimination. There is often like oversimplified language um, that will tell, especially young people, you know, racism exists because you know, black and brown people have darker skin or, you know, they were treated poorly because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. When we have to think about who's bearing responsibility and the language we use. So I would ask that instead of that language, you would say, you know, black and brown people are treated unfairly because of racism, because of white mm-hmm. supremacy. It is not mm-hmm. the color of the skin that is the issue. It is the white supremacy that is the issue. That is so important and how beautifully said 
you also had mentioned that we need to be using more asset-based language when talking about all of this, that it's not just slavery that we need to be talking about with our kids. We have to also be talking about all these incredible Black people that have done incredible work or, or gay people that have done incredible work and, and have, have made incredible contributions so that it's not just here's what's wrong, but also here's what's right. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Because when we're thinking about this work with kids, they need to be left with something so they know that the world is not just like a hopeless, terrible mm, place. Right. Um, and in a lot of, I think, anti-racism work, we tend to focus on the negative. And it's not like an either or situation. Like we mm. have to understand our history. Um, and we also have to start dreaming and thinking bigger of how we're going to solve these problems. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of folks forget to focus on the justice part. Like after atrocities are committed, what does justice look like? And in so many cases, we might have no idea because we've never actually witnessed it before. Mm -hmm. But starting those conversations with kids to think about, you know, what would a, a real system for reparations look like? What would returning land back to indigenous tribes actually look like for people? That's hasn't really happened in the United States, except on like very small scales. Um, even looking at, you know, the Nuremberg trials, you know, the truth and reconciliation projects, you know, a lot of examples like that are, are not perfect, but they at least give some sort of, you know, place where we might be able to start. We can offer critique, we can try to build upon those ideas, but just letting kids know that all these awful things have happened and no one has done anything about it because that isn't true. Yeah. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book, and the great work you are doing? Thank you. Um, on social media, uh, my handle is at Teach and Transform on Instagram. I'm taking a Twitter break because it's getting pretty negative on there oh. and it hasn't been good for my mental health. Um, if you would like any sort of individualized support, I have a Patreon page, um, same name, Teach and Transform transform my website teachingtransform.org i am trying to revamp um my mother would say that I, I need to give it a makeover and she's absolutely right um but it's all still up there yes and please know everybody who's listening that liz kleinrock has done so much incredible work and has an enormous following on social media and and it is rightly so so many really tangible ways of of talking to kids about these important topics thank you so much for being on the show today i've loved being able to talk about these important topics with you and i just really appreciate your work thank you thank you so much for the invitation it's wonderful talking with you well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. I'm also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman and I'm trying my hand at TikTok. You can find me and I'll be going back and forth with Liz Kleinrock this whole week talking about the podcast. If you love this podcast like I did, I hope you will go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about these amazing strategies that Liz Kleinrock really lays out and these viewpoints that she lays out so easily so that other people 
in their homes, in their schools, in their businesses, in their communities, can use these strategies in their own homes and in their own facilities. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today, my fellow parents, leaders, and educators. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. This topic is challenging. And maybe you said something or you did something or you didn't do something that you wish you did. You can go back and try again. You can have the conversation again. You can revise and revamp. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting usually provides you with the ultimate do-over. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you're 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.